Greetings to all the Mainly fans out there. This is Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and Mainly History. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. The U.S.-Canada border is the longest international land border in the world. 611 miles of those, or 983 kilometers, are between Maine and Canada. The eastern portion, between Maine and New Brunswick, was the first to be worked out. But as our guest today has argued, the process of building an international border between Maine and New Brunswick after the American Revolution was, in many ways, a process of local collaboration. Different groups of Wabanakis, British subjects, and American citizens had their own reasons for marking boundaries and their own interpretation of how important it was. Perhaps most surprisingly, the story of creating an international border in Passamaquoddy Bay was as much the story of preachers, missionaries, and congregations seeking community as it was of government agents. I know at this point it's customary for me to smuggle in a relevant pun or two, but honestly the ones for this episode were borderline useless. Let's do this. My guest today is John Morton, Visiting Assistant Professor of History at Boston College. John, welcome to Mainly History. Hi, happy to be here. It's great to have you. Your work is a really interesting combination, dealing with a understudied border area between Maine and Canada, and then also the role of religion in shaping this border. Uh, just to start with, could you could you talk about maybe how you came to this topic in the first place? Yeah, yeah. I, I Well, I'm from Maine originally, so I, I'm from Farmington, Maine. And I, uh, I was always kind of interested in studying the border, um, especially the border between the English-speaking parts of of New England and the English-speaking parts of Canada, like the Maine-New Brunswick border, because the people seem so similar on either side of it. I crossed the border as a kid. So I always kind of wanted to study it. And and when I started my doctoral work, I thought that I would look for border crossers and I would look for people right around the revolution and see who was crossing the border. And the first people that I thought would be border crossers would be religious people ministers. And my assumption was that they would do that because ministers want to preach to as many people as they can preach to. They wouldn't be, you know, discriminating and saying, I'm not going to preach to you because you're a British subject. Um, I thought that they would be, you know, the most likely to ignore the border in the, um, in the period after the revolution ended. And I also found out that um, there are so many documents about from these people especially the congregational ministers, because right after the revolution, they started to form these missionary societies and they would send ministers off to the, to the frontier, which was basically Northern New England, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont. And these missionary societies popped up all over Massachusetts and Connecticut to send ministers there. And and they wrote in order to get paid for these trips, they wrote letters and they kept journals uh, to submit to the missionary societies so that they would be paid for their missionary circuits. And what I found when I got into these documents was that they actually were not that inclined to cross the border. That first, at first they, they were, but then as the years went on, they stopped doing it and they, um, and they kind of wrestled with it in the documents um, because the people who lived along the border would encourage them often to cross it. And they were increasingly saying things in the documents like, you know, I, I'm not sure this is appropriate. Maybe, maybe it's not within my purview. And uh, I thought that was really interesting. Um, hmm. 
that it was the opposite of what I had thought. And so I decided to try to trace it, you know, when, why, what is happening? Why are they making this decision? And, and um, can we, can we use these documents to kind of trace how the border starts to matter to people and how it becomes more, more fixed in place? So I was going to ask, uh, start with a, with a more basic question, both for Mainers in the audience and everybody else. So we're talking about the border or a border. And so if we can center ourselves, so it's 1783, the Treaty of Paris, that ending the American War of Independence, the main Canada border was, was one aspect of the, the border of the new United States. What was in 1783? Where was the where was the main Canada border located? Like whether it's modern towns or you know rivers or whatever, can you can you give us a sense? Eventually, there's a quite a lot of controversy about exactly where the line goes once it's inland. But in the time right after the Treaty of Paris, everyone basically knows that the border is somewhere in the middle of Passamaquoddy Bay and that it goes north from Passamaquoddy Bay. There's a a bit of disagreement about which river exactly. It's supposed to be, obviously, people who know the area today know the the border is the St. Croix River, which separates um, towns like Callis, Maine from St. Stephen, New Brunswick, like Robinstown, Maine from uh, an Eastport, Maine from um, St. Andrews. But there was a bit of, of disagreement at first about whether that river is really the true St. Croix, because they were basing this on old European maps that labeled it the St. Croix that I think date back to Champlain. But there was a lot of disagreement. Nobody actually called it the St. Croix in Passamaquoddy Bay, it turns out. Um they uh, they called it the Scudic, and then there were other rivers that um, could conceivably be the true Saint Croix. So there was some fighting about that, but then there was also a lot of fighting about the islands in Passamaquoddy Bay and like where exactly the line was supposed to go to divide those islands up, and that doesn't get resolved for for decades. Really, the British and the Americans argue about that, but basically. There's this general idea that the the border, we know that the border kind of splits the eastern and western sides of Passamaquoddy Bay. But the interesting thing to me is that there really doesn't seem to be any differentiation made between Americans and and British people, no effort to police the border or or enforce the border at all, which, I mean, it's sort of what you would expect when you when you when you create a border that's in a bay mm-hmm. everyone in the bay is interacting with each other all the time i mean it, uh, it's it's a uh, passamaquoddy bay is a place of a lot of fluidity and a lot of people moving around you're intentionally drawing the border in a populated place right um so that you know leads to a lot of complications to follow up then so uh, let's talk about the, the folks who are living there in 1783. I think most obviously the Passamaquoddy themselves mm-hmm. are, are in the Bay, presumably on, on both sides of this new international border. What other Wabanaki groups and groups of Euro-Americans are living in this border region? Well, so yes, the Passamaquoddy are the most prominent Wabanaki group that's actually living right there in the Bay. And you're right. They live on both sides of the line. And for a while, it isn't really decided which side they're going to lean towards. And that's part of the thing that I get into in my research. Mm-hmm. And then the Penobscot are more firmly on the main side, except in the back country, there's a lot of gray area about where exactly Passamaquoddy lands end and if they sort of bleed over towards the British border. And then the Wolsutwiuk over on the St. John River are also, you know, pretty close to the border, which nobody knows exactly where it's falling, but they have an approximate idea. The major Wolsutwiuk community is at Maductek, and that's on the Canadian side of the border. Exactly. Literally, yes. That's on the St. John River. Yes. Okay. Um, But also the Passamaquoddy and the Wolsutwiuk are 
they're very close together. I mean, they visit right. each other all the time and they, I mean, they're intermarried and there's a lot of back and forth. So it's, things are kind of fuzzy among all these communities in terms of where lines are going to get drawn. But while this is, you know, as that situation seems kind of fuzzy, you have this situation where on the one hand, you have these loyalists showing up after the war and they're getting land grants on the Eastern side of Passamaquoddy Bay. But then you have these Americans who ask for land and they get it too. So you have this group called the Cape Ann Association that have, they're not loyalists at all. I mean, they've been living in New Hampshire and Massachusetts during the war. Some of them even, I believe, fought on the the continental side. And then right after the war, they ask the governor of Nova Scotia, because New Brunswick wasn't New Brunswick yet. It was still part of Nova Scotia. It gets set off in 1785. They asked the governor of Nova Scotia if he'll give them some land in uh, British territory. And he just does. He just gives them a grant of land. Wow. And this actually, it's, it's funny because as you would expect, there are letters from actual loyalists saying, what are you, what's going on? Who are these people? What, they shouldn't be getting land. I mean, they're, they have been within the entire conflict within the rebel states, um, but they get it anyway. And, <laughs> and, you know, not that much changes if you, if you jump ahead a decade or two. There's, I think it's like 12, uh, 1805, maybe. You get this petition from all of these Americans for land grants on Grand Manan Island which is a big island that is today part of New Brunswick. And it's just off the coast of Maine. There's 15 Americans and two British veterans who apply for land grants in the same group. Uh, and they all get it. And there's no differentiation at all. They just, they just are handing out land to whoever is asking for it. So there's a lot of fluidity and actually too, um, a lot of, uh, what I study as well, um, I really like the um, the Lake Champlain, Quebec region. Mm-hmm. That border area has a lot of similarities to what's going on in Passamaquoddy Bay. And it's the same kind of thing going on over there, right? You have a, guys like John Jacob Astor, who we think of as a New Yorker, but he was constantly back and forth between New York City and Montreal in this like late 18th, very early 19th century. And he's investing in land on both sides of the border. He's trading furs on both sides of the border. He, you know, nobody's stopping him. There's no regulation saying, you know, you you can't be both a Montreal investor and a New York investor at the same time. It just seems like there's nobody really that interested in enforcing anything. So that's kind of the situation that these ministers are going into at first is the situation where everyone just seems to be ignoring the border. And treating it as if it, it's really not something that they need to pay attention to. Okay. So you're mentioning ministers uh, moving to this area from the Congregationalists. And so this is uh, descended from way back, the, the original Puritans mm-hmm. uh, in New England. Who else are we, are we talking about? Presumably there are, uh, there are Catholic priests working yep. both among some of the Wabanaki groups, uh, but then also some of the the French residents. Mm-hmm. Yep, there are Catholic priests. Um, there are Methodists to a certain degree. In terms of Catholics, it's mainly the Wabanaki that the okay. that are getting Catholic services. And there are some Irish Catholics that are starting to settle along the main coast. But it's and I'm this is a, a major part of of what I talk about the. Um, it's a really interesting story with the with the Catholics and the Passamaquoddy and Penobscot and the way the border um, with implications for the border. So if, mm-hmm. do you want me to kind of get into yeah. that for a second? So let's uh, especially since I mean, I think one of the, the major themes here in your work is partly just when the border starts to really matter. Right. Because mm-hmm. I think that already it's pretty clear that after 1783, in certain ways, the border is, is, is pretty fictional, right? Or it's right. And that for actual people on the ground, the precise location of this new international border is, it doesn't, it doesn't particularly matter to them. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's especially the case for, say, the Passamaquoddy, because they, 
they really aren't, I mean, they have land that they live on, both land that the British consider British and land that the Americans consider American. But the Passamaquoddy, even though they don't really care about the border, they really want a priest to be stationed with them. They want a priest Mm. to live with them. And they've been asking for a priest for a really long time. And they have not been very successful in getting the Massachusetts people to, to support a priest for obvious reasons, right? You wouldn't expect Massachusetts to be um, going out of its way to help supply French priests to main um, Native Americans, right? Well, um, and we should clarify, Massachusetts had a, a still a state established church. Exactly. Until uh, just before Maine statehood in 1820. Uh, and so the congregational church had official status. Exactly, right. And so you you have this situation where periodically they will ask and then they, they always get, uh, oh, you know, we'll think about it. Uh, so, for example, there's this great moment where um, during the American Revolution, these two men, Orono and Osong, who are Penobscot, they, they go down to, to Boston and they, they have a, the first message that they have is, you know, they say Penobscot soldiers fought with Benedict Arnold in the attack on Quebec. And so we would like to be paid for that. And so that's the first thing they ask for. And then the second thing is they say, we want a priest. We want you to support a priest for our communities, but here's what we'll do. We'll go and get him. We'll go to Quebec and we'll just get a priest. And then if you guys, I think it's hard to say exactly whether they want them to, to provide him with a salary yet, but they say, look, this will work out great because if we have a priest living with us, then Wabanaki from all over the Northeast will come to us to pray with us. But if we don't, and if the only priests are stationed in British territory, then our people will go to British territory to church services. And that's bad. That's going to be bad for you. And the, but the Americans, they're just not ready to do anything yet. So they basically Do the say, Americans agree with them that it would be bad if they indigenous don't, people living in Maine left? They don't. Well, it doesn't seem like they're that concerned yet, mm. but they will be because so what happens then is they, they basically pawn them off. They say, well, no, we're, you know, we'll take it under advisement, um, but we're not going to really do anything about that right now. So then after the war, the Passamaquoddy and Penobscot get tired of, of asking and, and they go to Carroll, who's the first bishop of, of the United States. He's in, he's in Maryland. And they ask him for a priest and he sends them a guy because he he's sending priests all over the place in the, in the first years of the early Republic. He's sending them because he has all these French priests in the um, early 1790s who are coming from revolutionary France. Oh, right. So he probably had plenty to pick from. Exactly. So he sends this guy Sicard to Maine to serve with the, the Wabanaki and the British steal him. The British poach this guy. They send him letters offering him a steady paycheck if he will move to the St. John River instead of living with the Passamaquoddy and the Penobscot. And Massachusetts starts getting these letters from John Allen, who is, is kind of the Indian, the unofficial Indian agent for, for Maine at the time. And he is saying basically what the Penobscot representatives were saying back in the revolution. He's saying, this is bad. The, the British are going to steal this guy and they've already sent a boat and they're, they are sending him all these letters and he's going to leave. And this is not going to work out well for the alignment of the Passamaquoddy. They are all going to align to the British interest if this is what happens. You, and so we're going to need to do something about this. And that I can't prove that this is exactly why they did it. But the next time the Passamaquoddy and Penobscot asked for a priest in 1798, Massachusetts gives them one. Massachusetts decides they're going to pay. They're going to use taxpayer money to pay a salaried French priest to live in Maine with the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy. I am just amazed. So at this turn of events, because so... This is 1798. 50 years prior, the idea that Massachusetts or British administrators anywhere 
will be trying to poach Catholic priests to invite them to minister, not, not only to minister, but to minister to Native American groups who they had been trying forever to get them to not house any Catholic priests. You know, there's, there's, whole, there's wars in Maine that are sparked by Massachusetts efforts to, to drive away French Jesuit missionaries from the Wabanakis in part. I know uh, it's, it's crazy because, you know, <laughs> lest we forget Massachusetts murdered Father Rail, um, a Jesuit priest who was living with the Norwich Walk right. uh, and Massachusetts forces burned Catholic chapels. And like it was it was the policy of Massachusetts to destroy Wabanaki Catholicism. Yeah, um, he was. Uh, before, I mean, he he is killed in a in an attack, so right. they didn't exactly put a hit out on him. That's but, true. That's true. That's but it's before, maybe a bit strong. I mean, but. clearly the the residents of of Norwich Walk after this initial attack, some of them were massacred, and we shouldn't uh, we should you know we shouldn't obscure that or, or water that down by any means. But Rail himself was the target of several high-profile kidnapping attempts, basically, by provincial militia, where the Norwich Walk had been, they'd sent militia to Norwich Walk several times to nab this guy. It's right. actually pretty impressive that he kept escaping as long as he did, considering that he was, I believe he was pushing 70 years old. Yeah, um, he'd been there for a really long time. Yes, and he was, so the our, our most recent episode, Laura Chimileski, was uh, speaking with me about, you know, the, the spice of popery and about the, <laughs> the, the sort of Catholic influence on the border during the colonial period. And so, you know, rail is very much uh, a presence there. And he's the most famous of, or infamous, depending on who you ask, of all these missionaries, but he was far from the only one. Right. On and that so- note, can I ask, so the Passamaquoddy uh, and the Penobscots, they're asking for a priest when was the last who uh, when was the last time that a Wabanaki community outside of the the villages you know right on the St. Lawrence Seaway when was the last time that they had a priest and we'll we'll bracket the the Mi'kmaq you know likely had continued to have them uh, throughout it sounds like it's really hard to piece this together because there's all of these anecdotal references after Norwich Walk was abandoned in the 1750s. There's records among Anglicans uh, preaching in, uh, in, in mid-Maine that some of the Kennebecs, uh, that's the, the, the Wabanaki group uh, along the, the Kennebec River, uh, that they had a French priest with them. And then some of them were still, uh, were still practicing just their traditional faith. And so that's in the, the late 1760s, early 1770s. And that's as, that's as late as I'm aware of. So it, it, again, it's, it's kind of hard to track this, but there are ref, similar references with the Congregationalists. So I think another reason why Massachusetts becomes more amenable to this idea is they, have, they know that there's these Congregational um, ministers who are being sent up to Maine. And the ministers are, they are told to try to make some progress with the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy. But every time they do that, they report that they're not successful, that the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy are Catholic, they don't want anything to do with them, and that it's it's useless to try to expend an effort on these people. And occasionally they mention that a French priest has shown up or there's a French priest around. Um, so it seems like there would occasionally be a French priest temporarily showing up in these communities. There's also a moment during the war, sometime after Orono and Osong uh, come down from the Penobscots to Boston to ask for a priest, they find a French priest on a boat, on a French naval vessel, a chaplain. I think in Newport, when the French fleet shows up like in 1779 or something, and they send that guy to Maine but he won't stay. They send, they, they're trying to placate the Wabanaki basically and say, well, okay, we found you a French priest. Here he is. Uh, and he goes up there and he, I think he spends the winter there, but he doesn't, I mean, he didn't come to America thinking that he was going to end up 
living in Maine forever. And so he, he <laughs> goes back to the, to the French ships eventually. So there's, there's priests kind of coming in and out, but nobody whose job it is to stay in Penobscot and or Passamaquoddy villages. And so that seems to be the, the decision that is made in Boston, which is that we need somebody whose job it is to stay, who, who will not be poached by the British because we will be paying him a salary and he will be the resident guy. And the Chevris, who's the head of the church in Boston, John Chevris, he, which Maine people know because there's a lot of things named after Chevrolet, right? In Maine, he really takes advantage of this because now Chevrolet had been periodically visiting Maine and visiting the Penobscot and, and Passamaquoddy communities, but he was living in Boston. His job was to tend to the church in Boston. And so they're able to kind of set up this system where Father Romaine, who is the guy who ends up and he lives in Maine um, for 20 years on the Massachusetts payroll, uh, serving in Maine. Every year, once a year, Chevris will go and visit Maine. He'll travel all the way up the coast and visit the Irish Catholics in Damariscotta. And, and then he'll go all the way to the Passamaquoddy in Penobscot. And then in the wintertime sometime, Father Romaine will do the opposite. He will travel from the Passamaquoddy and Penobscot villages down the coast and so they'll connect everybody kind of year round. So it really works. And it subs- it's all subsidized by Massachusetts. Massachusetts is mm. basically paying for this. But it, it does what Massachusetts wants it to do because the Passamaquoddy stop crossing the border for religious services. They don't need to do it anymore. And so they become seen more and more. And I don't mean they didn't intend, I think, for this to happen necessarily. They just wanted the priest. They wanted a priest who would live with them. But they end up seen more and more as as Maine Native Americans, not British First Nations, because of this, I, I would argue. And so increasingly in the documents from the British side, you see people complaining, you know, why, why do these people have a reserve on the New Brunswick side? You know, they are, they're Maine Indians. They, they shouldn't have a reserve on the New Brunswick side. And the New Brunswick people are also really bad at keeping these sorts of records. And so they can't even <laughs> keep track of like, you know, where they're supposed to have reserves of like how long they've had them. But I, I can illustrate this with something that I was talking about earlier. You know, I was mentioning that the British were kind of handing out land on Graham and Ann Island to anyone who wanted it, regardless of whether they were from Maine or, or British territory. Mm-hmm. And so the Passamaquoddy have been going to Graham and Ann for generations, forever. They go to Graham and Ann in the summer uh, to hunt seals and, and porpoises and things, I think. And so it's, and the New Brunswick people, they can't even remember if, if there's supposed to be a, a, a reserve on Graham and Ann. But eventually the, the Passamaquoddy ask for land officially on Graham and Ann. And the British say, no, uh, you can't have it, which is, again, bizarre because they, they had been giving it to whoever. But I think that, that the creation of that Catholic network that, was, that stopped at the border you know, the Catholic networks had blurred the border before, but now it's focused on Boston and it's, it is no longer blurring the border. And I think that has, that has repercussions. Hmm. You know, I'm interested in the, the idea that the British in New Brunswick think that they have the right to, to grant this Passamaquoddy land away uh, in the sense that I'm not sure which treaty they think they're basing that on or the, or the lack thereof, like with the, at least with the Penobscot, the British governor of Massachusetts by 1760 just informs them and says, well, we're not signing a treaty with you. We have defeated you in this war and we will allow you to survive and live where we see fit, but we're not going to dignify you with a treaty. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's one of the reasons the Penobscot side with the United States against the crown in the war to establish renewed regular relations. Right. But on the soon-to-be Canadian side of the border, uh, the history of these treaties and, and the source of, of property and sovereignty is, is different, especially after 1783. And so 
if you if you'd like to comment, if you have if you have anything to say regarding that regarding Grand Manan, by all means do so. And if not, we can kind of put a pin in that. It's it's fascinating to me, but it's really hard again to figure out. I mean, it seems like the New Brunswick authorities they also don't know what's going on. They don't right. know what they're basing this on. They don't know what's historically been promised to people. There's Indian territory that's marked on old maps, but nobody seems to really be paying attention to that. So yeah, it's it's really hard to figure out exactly what they're right. what they're thinking about it. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. This is something that I'm also there are several First Nation scholars who've done a lot of great work mm. on these issues that are still live, particularly in Canada, but then in different ways. Uh, as you know, there's also, you know, different Penobscot uh, issues that are live as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's funny because the like this guy, Romaine, living with the Passamaquoddy, he shows up in the in the records of the congregational missionaries, too, because they they love to stop by and talk to him. Because <laughs> they go up to Passamaquoddy Bay, but not to talk to the Passamaquoddy, to talk to the um, to the white settlers, to the Protestant settlers. Mm. But they know that they are supposed to, like I, I mentioned before, they're supposed to occasionally try to make some kind of headway with the um, with the natives, and so they will sometimes stop by Pleasant Point and go and talk to Romaine and like engage him in a in a theological debate, right? Just for fun. Right. Um, and then like, you know, they, they have tea or whatever, and they agree to disagree. And then, and then they go out and they, they report back that the Passamaquoddy are happy being Catholic and that they aren't, they're not receptive to any um, proselytization. And so needn't bother worrying about them. But it, it's, it's interesting that like you kind of layer these networks on each other, right? Like the congregational network is in the same place as the Catholic network. And sometimes they talk to each other a little bit, but yeah, they're, they're doing kind of similar things in the same place. Right. Interesting. What I find really fascinating about your work is that well to to think about it broadly there's just it's a very common line of study from all kinds of historians talking about how this group or that actor or whatever blurred a line or served as an intermediary and made a border kind of fictional Mm -hmm. and you know that happens a lot and that's all well and good but i've also i've read that book Right. You know, Mm -hmm. and here you're talking about how, well, actually, these religious networks had a really important role in creating this border and making it a reality, even if, you know, to hear you say, you know, the the Passamaquoddy, they didn't really care. I mean, they didn't they didn't have any particular love for for either the, the United States or the crown or anything like that. And yet here they are playing a role in making the, the main Canadian border a reality. Yeah, that's what I really I really find fascinating about this is that I I've read those books too that that the the general attitude is that people are acted upon by the border and then mm-hmm. they you know sometimes they adapt to it and sometimes they blur it and I'm seeing a border that is not being enforced and people on the ground are the ones who are really creating and giving it meaning and st- making it something that looms larger over time. And in fact, the people, if you, the thing that I find fascinating, I, I've done a lot with maps recently, and there's all of these optimistic maps that British right. and American map makers love to make, right? Like, I'm sure you've seen these maps where the British love to draw mountain ranges that don't exist so that they can claim that that's where the border of Maine should be, right? Mm. Because there's supposed to be a very clear divider between the rivers that run to the St. Lawrence and the rivers that run to the Atlantic. It's that it's it's implied in the treaty that that, that, that is a very clear dividing line, right? So there must be a mountain range that makes that incredibly clear. And there isn't really. And the Americans just love to color in islands that they don't possess, like Graham and Ann Island. The Americans Mm. will sometimes color it in as American, even though it isn't. And so if you look at these maps, these traditional maps that the diplomats are using in London, there's a lot of of, um, openness, right? The Americans are still thinking, you know, we're going to get all of this territory eventually. And the British are also thinking, you know, we, we're going to absorb most of this and push the border back. But if you look at 
what's actually happening on the ground, the people on the ground increasingly know exactly where the border is. It, it is more important for them. It's more fixed in place for them than it is for the, for the negotiators in London. So as far as you've been able to tell from the sources you've encountered, for the Passamaquoddy or other, other Wabanaki, do they have an advantage in fixing a U.S.-Canadian border? Like there are certain ways where you can see clearly a, bo- a national border across their land might be really inconvenient, to put it mildly. But are there other ways or, or instances where they see an advantage in, in fixing a border? I mean, I think there's a slight, they know that they can use their position to get what they want. I mean, the advantage that they get is basically like we were talking about with the Catholic priests, right? Like they know that they can use their position to get Massachusetts to pay for this priest for them and to get the British to pay for a priest on the other side. I mean, it's it's not just them. The Wilsutwiuk get priests as well from the British, like this guy that they poach and that they steal over to their side of, of the line uh, that the British do. So I think that's what I see is them sort of using this position to say, like, you know, you you need us to be oriented towards your side. And in order to, to get that, you're going to need to give us what we want. And it works. Interesting. We've talked a lot about the indigenous Catholics on the border. Mm-hmm. At which point are they joined in significant numbers by Francophone and, well, I should say some of these indigenous Catholics, they're also Francophones so that they can, you know, speak with their French priests. But when do French Catholic, French descended Canadians become a, uh, a significant presence uh, in, on this region? It seems to take a while because the French, the French migration into Maine from Quebec is really not much of a factor in this earlier period. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there, there seems to be a little bit of it in terms of French workers being like seasonally working over the border of French guides guiding people through backcountry Maine. There's a little bit of migration going on from Quebec down into, I guess it was called Lower Canada at the time, not Quebec, but migrating down into what's now Vermont. But it's it's pretty small. It's It's just a trickle. It's not going to really ramp up, I think, until I mean, at least the 1830s, maybe the 1840s. So it really, it, it's, I mean, we would, we kind of are looking for that, right? Because we know eventually there's going to be a massive amount of French Canadian migration into Northern New England. Mm-hmm. And so we're sort of waiting for that to happen. But what's really happening in this earlier period that I studied, this, the 1790s and, and 18 aughts, is that there's a lot of New Englanders, Protestant New Englanders that are going the other way, that are moving to Lower Canada and moving to New Brunswick. They're moving to the British side of the borderland. So the, the migration is actually the reverse of what we of what it's eventually going to be. Hmm. And so those are the people that I'm sort of tracking with my congregational ministers. Okay. And why, if there's all of these New Englanders who are moving to the borderland, and it's the job of these ministers to minister to these people who are leaving Southern New England and moving into the borderland, right? The, the, the whole point of the missionary societies is to go serve these settlers who are, who are settling New England's frontier. Mm-hmm. Then why did the ministers stop at the border? That was what was sort of puzzling to me at the very beginning. Like, shouldn't they carry on if there are... American settlers settling on both sides of Passamaquoddy Bay, then why aren't the ministers going to serve them all? And so that's kind of what I'm trying to track in my documents. And I have you it, figured it out? Well, I think I think so. At first, they do cross. It's kind of fluid. In the very first years, you have these orders that are given to just go east, like go serve the settlers in the eastern settlements. And so ministers tend to just go serve them and and they do sometimes cross. I think the one that people might've heard of is Jonathan Fisher, who is in Blue Hill. Jonathan Fisher is is one of the more well-known ministers of this, of early Maine. And he he has some great journals and, and letters that he writes. And he talks about taking a mission trip 
in the 1790s and he goes up the coast and he preaches in Machias and he preaches in Eastport and Robinstown. And then he just carries on over into British territory. And he, and he talks about how he got great audiences in, in New Brunswick. And he really thought his, his sermons went really well. And then he's back over in Maine. And, but increasingly over the course of the 1790s and, and past the turn of the century, you have these ministers who are, for one thing, they're start, they start to be told not just go east, but go to, say, Washington County and like okay. serve Washington County. But also they're given a lot of books and pamphlets and a lot of printed material to distribute. And they are increasingly asked to, in, in especially right around 1804, the one of these missionary decide, societies decides that they are going to start setting up schools. And so they ask their ministers to kind of become census takers almost. They say, you have to make these charts of every town you go to and uh, how many people live in that town. Where do they come from? Like, where did they, where did they move to Maine from? Where, how many, do they already have any churches or schools established in the town? And so as these people are distributing resources, they increasingly in their letters express discomfort with crossing the border. They start to say that they don't think it's, it's something that they should maybe do. And they really wrestle with this because people in Passamaquoddy Bay will say, will you please come and, and preach in St. John and St. Andrews, which is in New Brunswick. And the, and the minister will say, well, it's, I, I don't think I'm supposed to. And so there's this one guy, I forget his name, but they, they ask him and he says, I don't know if I should. And they say, well, that's okay. I mean, just tell us when you're going to be in Robinstown and we'll, we'll like punt across the river and, and we'll go to your sermon. You know, it's pretty easy. It's not very far away. So you start to see this network that's being put together, especially a network of, of collecting donations, a network of books and pamphlets that only includes the main towns and does not include the New Brunswick towns. And that mm. network starts to make the border stand out a lot more. And I think that's where it becomes more of a fixed reality for people. This is so interesting, especially when it's not even like there's just totally different religious groups on each side of the border. We right. just have these sort of voluntary associations beginning to organize around different sides of the border and not even in an antagonistic way. Right. And, and there's this sort of attitude among the New England missionary societies. There is a missionary society called the London Missionary Society that is... Um, also congregationalist. It's, it's, I guess it's called dissenting when it's British, right? but it's, it's base, it's similar. And there's this sort of vague understanding in new England that the London missionary society is technically responsible for British North America. And so they should not step on their toes. Like they, they exchange letters with the London missionary society and and there's this sort of attitude, like we're all in this together, right? We're all doing the same thing. We're all kind of serving the same people, but you will serve your people and we'll serve our people and we'll meet in the middle and it'll be, you know, we'll, we'll for the glory of Christ, we'll transform North America together. So it's, it's almost like not a rivalry. You know, you would imagine, right. board, you would imagine borders to be built by rivalry. And this is a border being built by like deference almost. It's like, um, you know, we'll all do the same thing, but in slightly separate places. That should be the title of your book, <laughs> A Border yeah. Built by Deference. Yeah, that is actually, I like I like that phrasing no. now that I just came up with it. Yeah. Um, the ironic thing, though, is that the London Missionary Society doesn't really care about Canada that much. Um, <laughs> they know that they need to send people there, but they don't really want to. And so it, it's sort of a desultory thing where they're like, they'll occasionally send a few people over to when they get, so when somebody in Canada sends them a letter saying, please send somebody. They do sometimes send people, but they clearly they they have their sights on the, the broader globe. And Canada seems like not the most important place in the world to them. But they do. They do. Uh, they do occasionally send people. There's this great story that I, I've been trying to work into my various writings 
these dissenters in Quebec City send a letter to the London Missionary Society and they say to please send them a minister because there's only Anglicans and uh, Catholics uh, around and they want a non-Anglican, non-Catholic minister to come. And so the London Missionary Society sends this guy and, you know, he he tries to, to serve and he tries to gather a church, but the Anglicans are kind of mean to him and they they won't let him baptize people and marry people and they're sort of pressuring him. And so he decides that he is going to publish an attack. He's going to publish like a defense of himself. So he goes to Montreal, but he can't find a publisher for his defense of himself. And so he crosses over to Vermont and he he loves it because Vermonters were used to traveling ministers showing up from the from American missionary societies. And so he kind of travels around Vermont for a little while and he preaches in all these little towns and everyone seems very welcoming. And he goes down to Albany, New York, and he gets his thing published. And he goes, he's, he writes, you know, everyone was so welcoming in, in Vermont and New York. It was such a pleasant time. And so he, he gets his thing published and he goes back to Quebec and he presents it and he is immediately arrested and imprisoned for libel. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole thing just blows up in his face. And that's kind of indicative of the London Missionary Society in on the British side of the border. Canada's kind of an afterthought for them, which, and it turns out there's a lot more room for the American missionary societies if they had been willing to send ministers over the line. Those ministers would have gotten a lot of attention. They, they would have been able to preach to a lot of people, but there is this sort of feeling that, that the border should be paid attention to, and so hmm. they don't. It is striking to me how, I mean, this story that you found is in some way like it's just it lacks drama it lacks big confrontation or really kind of loud decisive resolutions right and it's Mm -hmm. this kind of not boring uh, by any means but like very you know if this was the plot of of like a a mini series or something like that it would never get picked up because it's the sort of relatively work-a-day gradual actions of, of groups of people just sort of figuring stuff out in a non-noisy, non-violent or not particularly confrontational way. That's funny that you phrase it like that. Cause that, that is sort of what, how it works. And like, every time you think something very dramatic could in fact happen, it gets diffused. There's another really great moment where the, there's this ship called the Sally that gets arrested, gets seized in Passamaquoddy Bay by British customs agents. It's an American ship and they accuse him of smuggling, basically, like unloading grain in the wrong place. And so they seize his ship and they take it to St. John, New Brunswick, I think. And then all of these people from the British side of Passamaquoddy Bay send these letters saying, you can't do this. You, everyone in, this, in the bay just unloads grain wherever they want. <laughs> because you have to, there's only so many mills. And if you have grain and the mills on the British side are running and the mills on the American side aren't running, then you just have to unload the grain on the British mills. And we do the same thing with the American mills. And like, it's impossible to keep track of timber. The timber is coming down from upriver and does it get caught in the British sawmill or a, or a main sawmill? I mean, you, you really can't police this stuff. And if you start seizing people's ships, then it's going to ruin this kind of loosey-goosey relationship that we all have. And so the British just sort of say, oh, well, never mind. So when you first encountered this, were you initially sort of going, aha, at last, we're going to see the fireworks? Or had you already at this point realized that that's just not going to happen? Well, I was, you know, I was like, okay, fine. Yeah, finally, there's somebody is paying attention to this thing and like, you know, trying to enforce something somewhere. And then it all just, you know, it all just fades away and everybody, everybody agrees not to talk about it again. It's a, it's an interesting situation. I guess that's another reason that makes it sort of hard to track, right? Is that you're tra- you're not tracking enforcement, you're, you're tracking non-enforcement, which is, yeah, it's, it's difficult. But and you, you yet do- here you have non-enforcement, but you have these polite people who are clearly economically entwined. They have you know, similar religious affiliations, and yet they're still peaceably on their own on the ground, creating this national border. 
as opposed to sort of shaking their fists and saying, we want to be friends. How dare you create this border, whatever, insert outside power. Like I'm just thinking about, again, the, the way in which in various other regions and times and instances that it plays out differently, where there's, there ends up being more conflict between outsiders and locals or something like that. Mm-hmm. You do get Go some on. suspicion. I mean, eventually we're going to have the War of 1812, right? Like, yes. um, And so you do have, obviously, the, the British seized a big chunk of Eastern Maine during the war. Right. And so that creates some bad blood. And then during the war, there is this sort of reckoning on the British side where you see in the documents a lot of people saying, gosh, there are a lot of American-born people over here. And shouldn't we be paying attention to this? Like, is this, should we be making it harder for people to take oaths? Maybe we need to figure out who all these people are and start really thinking about there being differences between British subjects and American citizens. But that takes, I mean, it takes a a surprisingly long amount of time for them to start to talk about stuff like that. And all through this period that I'm studying with my ministers, right, there's, there really isn't, isn't much talk about, about border enforcement. All right. Well, this is the, the power of self-identified white people sharing the same religion, uh, managing to get along. So, you know, there, there is that side of things too. Um, (laughs) Yes, that's true. uh, Although even there, you know, we still, you know, as you mentioned with the the Passamaquoddy and Penobscot and others, how even there, like you said, even though they don't particularly have a huge vested interest in in wanting a border, they're still contributing to its creation. Mm -hmm. And again, there, you know, there's a handful of of, of murders of indigenous people in the in 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 the region, and there's been some good work about that. But by and large, it's also pretty nonviolent. And it seems like they talk to each other t- too. I was talking about how the Catholics create this network that connects Irish Catholics who live along mid coast Maine, and there's a kind of a the beginnings of an Irish Catholic community in Eastport at this time, apparently too, and the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy, and. There seems to have been a decent amount of of communication going on. I mean, the Catholic priests would visit the indigenous Catholic communities and the Irish Catholic communities Mm -hmm. back to back. And then sometimes Father Romain would go and and spend a few months in Damascotta and some of the uh, Penobscot would come with him and they would also like camp outside of of Damascotta. And I have a document later on in the period where Apparently, Romain goes back to France after 20 years. This priest that had been paid for by Massachusetts, he decides that he he wants to retire home. And so the Congregationalists decide that maybe this is their chance to try to to make a little bit of of progress with the Passamaquoddy. Mm -hmm. And so this guy, Reverend Kellogg, he goes up and he tries to get a congregational school going in Passamaquoddy territory. And apparently the Irish Catholics around Eastport are telling the Passamaquoddy, you know, the priests in Boston are not happy about this. Like you, you should, you shouldn't be listening to these congregationalists because you're going to make the Boston Catholic network upset with you if you start flirting with congregationalism in this way. And I ask these congregationalists you're speaking of by 1800 or so, Congregationalists can mean a great spectrum of things. And so are these are these sort of crypto unitarians, or is this like 80 proof unfiltered Puritanism? It appears that it is both very Calvinist people and Unitarian people. There's okay. the first big missionary society to set up is called the Society for Propagating the Gospel Among the Indians and Others in North America, which I'll only say that once. I call <laughs> that the SPGNA. Right. So they seem like pretty strict Calvinists. But then pretty soon after, there's the Evangelical Missionary Society. There's all these other missionary societies that pop up, the Massachusetts Missionary Society, the Evangelical Missionary Society, the Maine Missionary Society, the New Hampshire Missionary Society. So they, there's all kinds of kind of spin-off societies that are all kind of loosely linked together. And the Evangelical Missionary Society seems to be more Unitarian. Okay. 
while the Massachusetts Missionary Society and the Maine Missionary Society are more Calvinist, but they all are kind of friendly with each other. I mean, they're writing each other letters and they're saying, you know, what parts of Maine are you covering this season? And we'll, we will make sure that we don't send a minister to the same exact places that you're sending a minister to. And so there seems to be a, a general agreement, even though they disagree on doctrine a lot, mm-hmm. there seems to be a general agreement that they don't need to worry too much about that when it comes to supplying religious services to the frontier. Okay. I think that I think they're more concerned with countering the Baptists and the Methodists than they are with differences between the two of them, because there's all kinds of, of ministers circulating right. on the and frontier. There would have been a lot of itinerant Baptists right. and Methodists by this point. Exactly. And these guys are not under the umbrella of, of an organized missionary society like the Congregationalists are, at least most of them aren't. And so, and the Congregationalists really don't trust those guys. Who knows whether these people are trained, where they come from. There are itinerant Baptists that are actually from Canada, from the Maritimes, who just will show up in Maine and, uh, and preach for a while and then go back. And so I think there's more of a focus on countering those people than there is on infighting among like Unitarian and and more Calvinist congregationalists. So among the Wabanakis, clearly the Catholics are, are, have the most success. And there's, there's a long history of Catholic Wabanakis among the minority of Wabanakis who are receptive to various Protestant outreaches, which denomination does the best? That I don't, I'm not really sure. I mean, there doesn't seem to be a lot of success. The people that I study are not having a lot of success with the Wabanaki and they never really report that they've been all that, all that successful. The missionary society that SPGNA has a fund that is just for native Americans, like a, a special fund that this guy, Al Ford he bequeathed to the missionary society this chunk of money that he specified they had to only use on Indian communities. Hmm. And so they, that's one of the reasons why they keep trying with the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy because they have this money that is earmarked just for those communities that they aren't supposed to use on white people. Hmm. But they, they can't they make any headway in Maine. And so they end up using it on a couple of communities in Massachusetts, um, one on Cape Cod and one on Martha's Vineyard. And then they end up using it on some ministers out to Oneida to upstate New York. They decide, okay, that's where that money's going to go. And we're not going to use it on Maine anymore because it's not, it's not working. Okay. I mean, that definitely, the, the Protestants had no success before the fall of French Canada in in proselytizing. And, but I was thinking, because in Southern New England, like for example, the Mashpee Wampanoag and others in, in Southeastern Massachusetts and on the Cape, they go all in for Methodism uh, and a sort of very great awakening, very evangelical, pretty radical, socially egalitarian, emotive style, which, you know, yeah, Congregationalist Massachusetts is not a fan of. (laughs) Right. But so for them, that strain of Protestantism that would have been much more akin to those, those, those wandering footloose Baptists and Methodists you were talking about, it would have been more of that style. Right. But so I wasn't sure how that played out on the border. Given that this is largely not a dramatic story per se, for you, when is the the end of this era of the polite border making? It happens, I guess it happens after right after the War of 1812. And it's 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 kind of a moment where the British finally realize that they aren't going to get the border that they wanted to get. I think that that they sort of assumed right up through the war that they could shift it if they really wanted to. They could maybe move the border to, to the Penobscot River instead. Or at the very least, they can grab some islands that the Americans are in possession of, really assert themselves. And they realize during the war that that's not going to happen, that the, I think the the stuff that I've been talking about, these these mm-hmm. networks and the changes on the ground, 
have made the de facto border permanent and that it's not going to be shiftable. And so then that's when I think you really start to to see kind of the end of that of that moment. And then we should add, of course, the the northern side of that gets finally adjusted with the the Aroostook quote unquote war and the, the sort of border adjustment of the up around caribou area and that that adjustment. But yeah, and that and that takes a lot of time. Yeah, um, yeah. Mainly because nobody, everyone is fighting over when the line is supposed to start jogging west. Mm. And yeah, there's a lot of saber rattling about right. that. But by right. that by that point, when it comes to the east-west line, the line between, you know, most of down east Maine and New Brunswick, by that point, that's basically taken care of. I mean, that is that is basically set. And it's really just fighting over like the watershed of the Aroostook River and, and where like where the line is going to go up there. Okay. But that does take a while. That's like right. 1840s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For your project, what's your big takeaway from this border story? I think the takeaway is that borders are not always created from on high, that we tend to act like borders are made by wars and and treaties and then imposed on people. And the people who they live in this place where a line was drawn through the woods, and then they have to kind of suffer through dealing with it. And I, I think that often that's not really what happens. I think that often borders are created by networks, by people who are, who are connected to each other. And I think also, I think sometimes people reflexively kind of go to the imagined communities mm. idea that nations are built through imagined communities. You imagine yourself as connected to a group of people. This is kind of the Benedict Anderson school of nationhood and nationality. But I think oftentimes it's not imagined communities. It's real. It's, it's real communities. These, are, these people in Maine are not connected in their heads. I mean, they're connected by a network that is collecting contributions from them, like monetary Mm -hmm. contributions and a network that is delivering them books and pamphlets and opening schools for them and, you know, real tangible connections between communities and sort of like the gradual alienation of British from American communities, even if they're really close together geographically, I think that's what creates a border that, that actually matters. And so that's, that's what I would hope people take away. Okay. So what is something that you are working on or are coming out with that our listeners should be aware of? There is an article that I wrote about Massachusetts deciding inexplicably to use taxpayer money to pay for this French Catholic priest to live in Maine with the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy. And that's going to be coming out in American Catholic Studies in an upcoming issue. And I'm also, I worked on this interesting an article about the data maps that these ministers were making, these, these kind of charts that they made of the borderland and how the data maps compare to those more optimistic maps that map makers make, where they draw very generous borders when, whenever they want to. So I wrote a, a, a book chapter about that, and there's going to be a, a book claiming land, claiming water, borders in the early modern Atlantic. And I'm not sure exactly what the publication schedule is on that, but it comes out of a conference, a border conference in London from just before the pandemic. And a lot of papers from that conference are going into this book, but it's still in the, it's still in the drafting and revising stages. So that's where my, uh, where my scholarship is going right now. Great. Well, definitely keep us posted. And then what is something that somebody else has come out with that you think our audience should check out? There is a great book on the U.S.-Canada border that came out just last year. It was by a a Canadian author, I believe, uh, called A Line of Blood and Dirt. His name is uh, Benjamin Hoy. It really, it, it seems it's right up my alley. I mean, it, he is more focused on the border in the plains and in the West. There's very little on the border of New England in there, but he sees it in a kind of a similar way that native groups, especially didn't, were not always acted upon by the border. They actually, they acted on the border. 
So I like that book. I think that's a, for people who are interested in borders and, and the main yeah. and the U.S. Canada border. That's a that looks like a pretty good book. The other thing that I wanted to mention is that I've really enjoyed reading books about the Maritimes and about that that main New Brunswick borderland recently. And I feel like that it, it gets it's understudied compared to Quebec. Right. Because so yeah. many of us, myself included, so many of us have. Quebecois heritage that we we tend to focus on Quebec as the border that that really matters and I think that the main New Brunswick interactions get kind of lost in the shuffle a little bit is there a title you'd like to shout out why well, I, I was just reading I mean this isn't really about what I study but like um as I've been traveling in the Maritimes, I've been reading maritime novels, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of really good ones. The Alastair MacLeod's No Great Mischief is about kind of coal miners from, from Nova Scotia traveling in the throughout the borderland. And I don't know if you saw that the book Milltown by Carrie Arsenault, which is about Rumford in the present day. She really gets into her identity as a uh, Acadian and... Mm-hmm. you know, uh, people that blended over the border from New Brunswick to Maine. She talks about that a lot. And I, a friend of mine, Patrick Mannion, who is a Newfoundland person, he he wrote a book called Land of Dreams, which examines Portland, Maine, Halifax, Nova Scotia, and St. John's, Newfoundland, and the Irish communities in those three cities. Interesting. And how they're, you know, really kind of fascinating to me. That's an academic history book. But I just found it fascinating because it's it doesn't always align the way you'd expect. Sometimes Portland, Maine, and Halifax have more in common, and like St. John's is the outlier, and then sometimes St. John's and Halifax have more in common, and Portland is the outlier. Mm-hmm. But there's there are so many communities that blur that border that I think should be should be paid attention to a little bit more. And so uh, I would encourage people to to check out some books that focus on the Maritimes instead of always focusing on the, yeah. on the Quebec main access, even though that is a great access and I love it. And these are my people too. Sure. Um, <laughs> I, get, I get it. It's just, yeah, yeah I, I find New Brunswick and Nova Scotia fascinating in part because I think other main people would understand this too. If you go to New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, it is so much like Maine. Hmm. We share so much in terms of what just what these the provinces and and the state are like and the problems that we face mm-hmm. uh, but sometimes the border just looms so large i mean there'll be like big news stories in new brunswick and nova scotia that have absolutely no they register not at all on the main side of the border and i find that you know it's interesting um yeah. why that happens so yeah that's what i've been thinking about well we will put links to those titles up on our social media pages and the audience is encouraged to to give those a look if that piques their interest john morton thanks so much hopefully we will speak with you again soon yes it's it's been a pleasure I'm, i'm i'm glad i had a chance to talk to you that's our show if you haven't followed us on your favorite streaming platform you're missing out and please help other potential mainly fans find out about us by liking us or leaving a positive review to work those algorithms if the spirit moves you. Coming very soon, we'll be talking about the legal history of indigenous land and water rights in Maine, and what the big cases here have meant for other indigenous nations across the U.S. That's next time on Mainly History.